0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, it's the dog days of summer... The movie theaters are probably feeling a little bit slow after Barbenheimer earlier. So I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm about ready to start catching up with some of the movies that we might have missed a little bit earlier.
0: Yeah, I mean, lots of movies are going to pale in comparison next to the juggernaut of Barbenheimer, of course. But we've got a couple that are going to be holding their own in this week's episode. We are going to be playing catch-up with an indie film that came out earlier this year, The Starling Girl.
1: And then we're going to be following that up with one Guillermo del Toro's movie, The Devil's Backbone.
0: Looking forward to talking with you about those, Sarah, on episode 397 of Seeing and Believing. Dear Lord, I want to reflect your holiness. Come into this space and fill it with your spirit. Amen. Amen. I've noticed that the bra that you chose is visible through your dress. Oh, teachable moment. Hey, thank you. We try to be very conscious, but things slip. Jim Starling.
1: Ben Taylor asked your
0: dad about courting you. i never really talked to Ben. Seventeen's the time to start thinking about these things. Hey, guys.
1: Real happy to see you all. Just feel the ground underneath you.
0: Your eldest.
1: We haven't seen him since his return. Oh, yeah,
0: he's a youth pastor. Hey, need help?
1: Sure. You ever want to be a pro dancer? No. Think God will strike you dead if you're enjoying dancing? Show me something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 397, listeners. And I feel like now the clock is ticking on us, Sarah. Every Mm -hmm. time I announce the episode number at the top of the episode... I realize that the end is nigh, mm-hmm. ever nigher, I guess, <laughs> the end and is it, it makes it, it makes me a little sad.
1: <laughs> it make, it bums me out a little bit too. I'm going to miss doing the weekly episodes, but at the very least, we'll get to read each other every single week on yeah. new releases too. So, and the end was always coming; we just didn't know when it was coming yet.
0: I guess that's true. It is a metaphor for the human condition, seeing and believing, is right now. Mm-hmm. So, welcome listeners to that. Welcome also to our discussion. Of two films I'm looking forward to talking about with you, Sarah, uh, we're going to be talking about a movie from one of my favorite working directors right now, Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. uh, The Devil's Backbone, in our watch list segment. But for now, let's turn our attention to The Starling Girl. This is uh, an indie movie d- written and directed by Laurel Parmit. It came out uh, much earlier this year, but we didn't have a chance to talk about it on its release so we're playing a little bit of catch up now so Mm -hmm. here's the film's synopsis the protagonist played by eliza Scanlon, probably most recognizable to viewers as beth from Greta gerwig's adaptation of little women Mm -hmm. uh plays 17 year old jem starling jem struggles to define her place within her fundamentalist christian community in rural kentucky but even her greatest joy of dancing with the church group is tempered by worries that her actions are sinful she eventually gets groomed into an inappropriate relationship by Owen, played here by Lewis Pullman, a youth pastor freshly returned from a mission trip. Jem is initially attracted to his worldliness and charm, but of course, she's unprepared for the doors that their relationship flings open in her life. So Sarah, obviously, this movie is dealing with some pretty difficult and thorny subject matter. So to start off, I'm really curious to get your take on how well Laurel Parmit does in navigating those waters.
1: Yeah, um, with a great amount of subtlety and tact, I think, which I very much appreciated because it is difficult subject matter and it's really difficult to make a good movie about such subject matter as well, I think, without a form of nuance and then without um, a great deal of sensitivity. And I think Parmit manages to pull that off here. Um, A lot of that grace, I think, comes in the specificity of the movie and then also in the performances for all of the lead actors. I think everybody is doing really good work here, but especially Eliza Scanlon. And I appreciate the focus that is paid specifically to her character because this movie would not work if it were trying to treat the situation in sort of a as an object lesson. And I don't think that it would work either if equal time were given to the mental spaces of both of our main characters to both Jem and to Owen. Um, and I really appreciate that the movie centers Jem and centers where she is It's very conscious of the fact that she is a 17-year-old girl and is not particularly familiar with the ways of the world just yet. And it doesn't treat that as a moral failing of hers, but it does set that up as an example of this is someone who is very vulnerable to someone else who is in a position of authority and who is willing to abuse that authority. And I think the movie manages to thread that needle of telling this specific story with a great deal of tact in a way that I appreciated quite a lot. So, curious to know how you came away from it.
0: Yeah, it's uh I'm really impressed by this film uh for a lot of reasons. Um one of them being I think it is really daring in the way that it portrays Jim. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of the credit obviously goes to Scanlon in that role, but I also think uh in the writing and directing um Laurel Parmit threads a really difficult needle in Obviously, um, making it clear that Jem, as a seventeen-year-old, just thinks she knows a lot more about the world than she actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, she is being manipulated by this by this youth pastor. But Parmit avoids making her simply a passive victim. Yes. If that makes sense, she is victimized, but she's not she's an she's an agent nevertheless like she's active and she does make her own choices the needle that the film threads is in finding a way to make it clear that uh she's making choices but her choices are uh sort of happening within a milieu that is beyond kind of beyond her control mm-hmm. and that i think is pretty daring because if it goes wrong then it kind of seems almost like the movie might be saying you know she brought it on herself or Mm -hmm. doing exactly what one of the other characters accuses her of doing which is you know sort of working her wiles so to speak Mm -hmm. on uh this youth pastor and i that's a really difficult tightrope to walk and i think a lot of the credit is again because of the performance but also because I think Parmit takes Jem's faith seriously, yes. and um, the film also takes seriously how a very conscientious, serious minded faith uh, can be turned uh, to unfortunate ends when the somebody who speaks the same language decides to uh, twist the language of spirituality and Christianity Mm -hmm. uh, to very much anti-Christian ends.
1: Yeah, yeah. I knew I was in good hands from the first shot of this movie. It opens with Eliza Scanlon staring directly into the camera and praying that her performance is going to be something that brings God glory and isn't something that focuses all of the attention specifically on her. She's a very conscientious teen She's somebody that I recognize, I think, um, and she's very clearly a character who has a very serious and rich faith life, but is also not fully an adult, not fully developed yet. And the way that the movie is able to navigate her, placing her in her spiritual life before anything else, I think, does a great deal of work to give us a sense of the context that this character is coming from, what kind of a church she's been raised in, what she believes, what the other people around her believe. And it manages to do so primarily through incidental dialogue that isn't just explicit expository, you know, as you know, this is something that we do and believe here. Um, which is remarkable, especially because it's very easy to fall back on the shortcut of just having a pastor deliver a sermon that tells you all of the themes of the movie straight up. And this movie doesn't do that because it puts most of that dialogue into the mouths of Jem and her mother, and then a lot of the other women in the church around her too, which is where she would be learning a lot of these lessons kind of implicitly as she's growing up. So We get that opening prayer, direct address to camera. Really bold choice, I think, to have your actor start by breaking the fourth wall and breaking that fundamental rule of filmmaking, and then making it clear that this is something that is very important to her and to her spiritual well being. And then going straight from that prayer into a church service in which She's chastised for a clothing choice that she's made that she didn't make consciously, but is something that the other women in the church around her would believe is, is an immodest choice. And seeing the way that she is chastised for that choice and being cited as kind of a, a quote teachable moment, like a lot of the language feels very lived in and studied and familiar. And it's Something that made me realize like this is this movie is going to be critiquing a lot of the structures that allow for abuse and for a character like Jem to be vulnerable to that abuse, but it's also coming from a place of love where it also understands where these teachings are coming from, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that opening shot where uh, we get we get Jem praying uh, about her upcoming dance performance. Um is, uh, so well realized in the writing that it it felt like I was hearing some of my own teenage prayers sort of parroted back at me like that Mm -hmm. the the specific language that is used where Jem prays you know I don't want people to look at me I want them to you know I want them to see Christ in me I don't want them to see me Mm -hmm. um the way that other characters um try to uh uh, spiritualize a lot of their their approach to things uh using uh, you know, Christian sounding language that there's nothing wrong with it. it like the the underlying sentiments aren't bad per se. Mm-hmm. It's but you can tell that they're sort of a cover for something else. And I think the big triumph of this film is how perceptive it is uh about how, in certain um, very uh, devout circles, um, it's really easy to spiritualize anything. Mm-hmm. How the way that you know often when uh, you're living in in that kind of a, a culture, um, the only way to want something uh, in a in a culturally acceptable way is to cloak it in uh, spiritual language. So you can't simply want to dance because you love to dance. You have to want to dance because it ministers to people mm-hmm. or because it brings God glory. And um, that I think is kind of the, the common thread that runs throughout the film from old, not just gems dancing, but uh, the way that she and Owen interact, that is also cloaked in, in spirituality where the things they want are wrong but because they kind of clothe it with this theological veneer mm-hmm. it can very quickly seem to them as if it's right and i think that's a very perceptive bit of characterization writing on parmets part
1: yeah it's a twisting of theology to meet something else as opposed to you know conforming to good theology i think in a way and yeah it it feels like a natural thing that these characters would do because it's also sort of a second language to bring in scripture to justify something that you want or to bring in scripture to justify um denying something to somebody else as well. Um and I think it's a script that's really perceptive of the way that that specific kind of language can be used either for, you know, good discipline or bad discipline or For just completely bad ends as well. I think it's a movie that is perceptive of the language and then also of the power structures that I think people may not necessarily always be aware of as they're living in them as well. So there's a very um, it's a very closely related community that sort of centers around this church. And a lot of that revolves around the pastor and the pastor's family. Owen, this youth pastor, also happens to be the son of the pastor and patriarch of this church. And Jem is also in the process of being actively courted by another son of this same pastor as well. And courtship,
0: again, that's right out of a certain subculture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it definitely is. And a specific subculture where it doesn't feel as though the movie is treating any of this as though it is... Other, or as though it is something that is foreign or exotic. It it really does treat this as, this is a way of life for these people who are subjects of this movie. And I think it's respectful of that in a way that allows the movie to bring out the nuances of, okay, so this is everyday life and here's how this could be abused by somebody who does not have the best intentions.
0: And it's also uh, perceptive about how somebody... Uh, like Jem, uh you know, can be abused without even necessarily realizing it's abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the insidiousness of spiritual abuse, I think, is captured in this film uh, because I, I feel like there are a lot of uh, pictures that do deal with, you know, fundamentalist cultures or very cloistered religious communities that are kind of looking at them from the outside Mm -hmm. that um, assume that spiritual abuse kind of takes the form of haranguing. Um, Mm -hmm. It it often seems like a perspective that is informed more by engaging with stories about religious communities rather than actually being in them. And this film, I think, is very perceptive about how spiritual abuse, the insidiousness of it is that While it's happening, you often can't identify it as abuse because, again, it's got that very spiritualized veneer that puts um, positive religious teaching uh, to very bad ends. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very difficult when you're in the midst of that breathing that kind of air to identify it for what it is. It feels like, well, you know, we are supposed to deny ourselves and we are supposed to. Uh, seek god's will in all things so of course this makes sense that this is happening to me this way and it's very it's often only with some distance that you're able to kind of identify how certain teachings have been twisted in order to control or to uh, manipulate
1: yeah i think a mistaken portrait of fundamentalism is that it's like this town in Footloose, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's a lot more subtle and it's a lot more um, all-encompassing, but not in like a single dimension. Like there are a lot of dimensions, I think, to fundamentalism. And this movie gets that and it understands it. And I think it was a lot of those little details that really won me over, not just in terms of the script or the performances, those are also very good, But all the way down to the costuming, Jem's wearing a a promise ring or a purity Mm -hmm. ring, and she's wearing one that has a heart on it, and the heart is facing outward, which literally means you're not taken yet. And that was a detail that I clocked immediately and then realized, like, oh, this movie knows what it's talking about, and it's not just talking that talk either. Um, Same deal with just the way that the characters are dressed. It's, It's something that feels very lived in. Everybody's in collared shirts and slacks if they're boys or collared shirts and long dresses if they're girls. And not every single fundamentalist community is going to be dressed like this, but it feels of a specific flavor that rings true and is also not a caricature at all. Um, So I really appreciated that. And I think that that care that goes all the way down to the costuming and the kind of ring that Jem is wearing um, sort of permeates the entire film so that it supports this portrait of her as essentially an innocent who is still capable of making her own decisions and who also does not fully understand the weight of those decisions and is also extremely open to A cycle of abuse specifically because she has been brought up to trust that authority figure implicitly and she does not know to she does not know to question him specifically because he's a pastor he's got to have her best interests at heart and that's crucial um i also suspect that the movie strongly implies that this is not the first time that this has happened with the character of owen either um he's returned from puerto rico and The circumstances of that return are kind of unclear, but the rushed nature with which he's returned to this community made me strongly suspect he's Mm. come back from there because he's done something similar and he's running away from that. And that carries through in the way that he's characterized and in the way that uh, Lewis Pullman plays him. He's always on the run. He's always moving on to the next thing. He's kind of just skating by over life and he's happy to have this particular relationship because it's something that allows him to quote unquote escape everything else around him and i'm not remotely excusing any of his behavior because it is foul but well
0: i i think this is why you know as good as scalen is and she is very good i almost wonder if my favorite performance might be lewis pullman as owen Mm. because he does manage he his performance you 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 watch him and you're just like god that guy is such a creep mm-hmm. but at the same time he's not he's not a mustache twirling villain right he Correct. he feels like a person who could plausibly lie to himself about what a creep he is mm-hmm. and i think that's integral also to the way that abuse often often happens in churches where the wolf in sheep's clothing often doesn't think of themselves as a wolf Mm-hmm. They think that they're just a very conscientious Christian who has some failings. And I think Lewis Pullman's performance kind of keys into that where he is grooming the 17-year-old and he's got a lot of power and influence over her. But he kind of thinks of himself as the the cool dad, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. he's got that quintessential uh, cool youth pastor vibe where – Uh, Pullman is constantly like, you know, running his hands through his, his lush, his luxurious locks. Mm -hmm. He's always, he kind of carries himself as a guy who sort of knows how cool he appears to the sheltered youngsters under his care. Mm -hmm. And that I think is integral to the portrait of a guy who's like, he's bad, but he's bad in a way That gives him enough plausible deniability to himself and to his community that he can sort of skate by uh, and and make it seem like, well, it takes two to tango here rather than I am an abuser. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a difficult needle to thread that I think the script and the performance both manage with flying colors.
1: Yeah. And I think... It's important once the movie hits a crucial turning point and everything starts to fall apart, specifically because this character is so good at skating by and justifying his actions. And because this character is also an authority figure, he is also able to skate out of certain situations, shall we say, in a way that allows him to deflect some of that blame And that too, I was wondering how the movie was going to be able to handle it. And the film is able to do so in a way that feels very real and true to situations of spiritual abuse in which someone who has less power is very likely going to take the fall and the blame for a situation in which, quote unquote, you know, it takes two to tango. But in this case, this character who is taking the fall for it is also not fully capable of making her own decisions yet because she's not yet an adult. And I appreciated the way that the movie was able to depict the fallout from this relationship and to demonstrate the way that it affects each of the other characters within Jem and Owen's orbit. And doesn't really pull any punches about the ways that they would react in this situation either. It felt very realistic to me and very lived in. And I think that made it a little bit more painful because there is no happy ending, essentially. When you have a situation like this, there is the hope for grace and there is the hope for some form of healing, especially for the victim of an abuser. But quite often, that's just not how things are going to go. And the way that the movie manages to walk that tightrope, walk that balance, and then still manage to find a way to resolve the story without tying up those loose ends or make everything, you know, just right as it was beforehand because it's never going to be that way. I really appreciated that it felt both emotionally true and also deeply disappointing because that's kind of life and that's how situations like this tend to end
0: yeah I, I i'd love to talk more about that resolution i mean obviously you know we aren't going to give any spoilers here necessarily but mm-hmm. i i agree with you that it does it does manage to wrap up its story in a way that doesn't feel as if it's um putting a tidy bow on things mm-hmm. Um, I think it ends in a perfect place because um you know, dance is such a central part of Jem's life, and dance plays a part in the final shot. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that the film is very perceptive about how there's there's multiple scenes throughout the film where, you know, Jem is you know, she she's doing a dance, she's choreographing a dance, she's performing. And in every single one of the, those scenes, it, uh, the response to her art is to try to tell her how she was doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always somebody there to correct her, to offer their feedback, to have you know give her a teachable moment. As as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I think it's very telling that Jem is a dancer rather than. A writer or a painter or another kind of artist because with dance there's no real getting away from the fact that it must be embodied mm-hmm. like the the fact of the body is the the central element of dance there's no getting around the fact that the body must move in order for there to be any sort of dance to begin with mm-hmm. and the community that's a part that jim is a part of is uncomfortable with the fact of her body. Mm -hmm. Um, They, there's no way to really spiritualize it entirely because spirit is not body. Those two things are not synonymous with each other. And the response is almost to try to negate or downplay the embodied nature of herself in ways that can allow people to be a little bit more comfortable. And I found that to be a fascinating thing to, to think about. Um, uh, you know, the Gnosticism buzzword gets thrown around a lot, maybe a little bit too much. But I think there's value to kind of applying that lens to this film and observing the ways in which the community around Jem uh, is so in- invested in spiritualizing things, whereas Jem is so rooted in the physical, whether it's in her dance or in kind of her realization of her sexuality.
1: hmm Yeah. Yeah. I was a little bit torn right up until that final shot that takes dance into back into the equation, I think. And I suspect that it's because the ending skews a little bit towards a subplot that we haven't really talked about all that much yet. And that has to do with Jem's father, Paul, who's played by Jimmy Simpson, um, is a former musician who gave all of that up when he converted or as, as he says it, when he got saved, essentially. And he is also sober, or at least he's a, he's a recovering alcoholic. And that comes into play a little bit later because there is a subplot in which one of he's found out something about one of his former bandmates, essentially. And so as Jem strikes up this relationship with Owen, her father, Paul, is also sort of starting to spiral himself in some other ways that may or may not be more or less self-destructive, too. And I wasn't quite so sure about that specific subplot because I felt like it was kind of subtracting a little bit from what Jem was going through and what she was experiencing. But at the same time, I think it does give, I don't know, a helpful contrast or a little bit of additional texture to the world that Jem grows up in. It's not as though everybody around her has always been in this specific community. And it's pretty clear that her father has given up quite a lot in order to be a part of that community along with his family. And so I I was kind of curious to know how you reacted to that subplot as well, because I wasn't fully sold on it right up until that final shot, specifically because of where it takes place and Mm -hmm. what that all
0: entails. I mean, I do think there's a third act turn with the subplot uh, with Jem's father that uh, I wasn't so much that I had a problem with it, it just seemed a little bit rushed and I would have liked to have mm-hmm. seen it have a little bit more breathing room. but other than that, I was I I was really invested in that relationship mm-hmm. as well. Part of it is again the performance uh, by Jimmy Simpson as her father. I think he's does so well at evoking a a man who was not always uh, a very conservative religious type mm-hmm. um, who entered that uh, world. Partly, almost as an act of self-preservation, we we get the sense that uh, before he became a Christian, there was he he was you know pursuing his art, but he also had a lot of personal demons that he was dealing with, uh, mm-hmm. you know his his alcoholism foremost among them, and that I think is a very interesting tension that the the film can't really explore because the film is so rooted in gem's perspective but i think it finds ways to let that creep in all around the edges that i think kind of helps buttress gem's own journey specifically with her struggle with how much of faith is you know, how much self-denial is required for your faith and how much mm. self-denial is simply uh wielded as an instrument by uh uh, authorities that wish to use her for their own purposes in various ways, not just in, in Owen's way, but the way uh, her, her family or even her pastor kind of like try to make sure she fits into a certain mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that having her father there acts as a very good way to explore that tension because in some ways in him, the tension is kind of, it's not resolved but he's made a definitive choice. Hmm. Um, He's kind of chosen his path and he's on that path now. And he has to live with the consequences of that choice. Hmm. And so it's almost like with her father, Jem is seeing one possible future of a person who has, um, decide just how far they're going to go in, uh, self-denial or self-discipline for their faith and the sacrifices and consequences that can entail. Hmm. Um, so yeah I don't know I, I was I was pretty on board with that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think I was on board with the chemistry between Scanlon and Simpson specifically because there is a very easy camaraderie that you that just feels like a familial relationship that makes sense. Um, I think some of the ups and downs of her father's personal journey almost felt a little bit more like a distraction, but hmm. that could also be the fact that. This is a 17-year-old girl whose head we're spending a lot of time in. And so she's not going to be focused on all things exactly equally all the time. It's just what's in front of her at that moment. So um, I don't know. Like – It felt a little bit distracting, but at the same time, I'm not going to ding the movie for it because I think it also is a choice that makes sense, even though I didn't fully understand it in the moment. It all comes together in the end, I think, in a way that feels satisfying.
0: I mean, the other interesting thing about her father is that he, um, you you get the sense from Simpson's performance that uh, when he entered this this more conservative uh, Christian culture... Uh, he was sort of expected to become the man of the house. Mm. And it feels to me, the impression I got from Simpson's performance is that that's a role that her uh, Jem's father wears uneasily, mm. where he, he is expected to sort of be the guardian of his daughter's purity and to make decisions about who she's allowed to court or to lay down the law when uh, she's perceived as uh, going a little bit too far with her dance routine. Mm. Um, he's kind of the one, that is positioned as the ultimate authority and the ultimate kind of controlling figure in her life. And he fulfills that role, but Simpson plays him as if he's fulfilling that role, kind of as if he's doing what he thinks is expected of him, rather than the fact that he's a true believer in that kind of patriarchy. Mm. I found that to be an interesting note that the film plays, and also kind of, again, provides a different uh, perspective on the overall culture that this church exists in.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting contrast to to Jem's mother, who's played by Ren Schmidt as well, because she very clearly is someone who has most likely grown up in this specific flavor of the faith as well. And she seems to me like she is the true disciplinarian of the family. She's just not allowed to claim that as the title mm-hmm. necessarily. So she does defer some of that responsibility off to Paul until he's unable to take on that responsibility anymore. I also, really liked Schmidt's performance as Jem's mother as well because there's a there's a backbone to her and a surprising vigor to what she does and says and believes that felt extremely cohesive and extremely forceful in a way that I don't know it just it rang true. She's a, she's a good well realized character without needing to have to do too much in order to earn that.
0: She's very believable as a, as a mother who, you know, is a true believer in the, um, in the gender roles and sexual norms of this culture, but also um, somebody who hasn't been so she, she's not so two dimensional that she just kind of becomes an avatar of repressiveness. Yeah. She feels very motherly. um, And in some ways you, you get the sense from that performance that there's some friction between her, Uh, Her instincts and her love for her family, but also her beliefs that she either has to uh, put those in the background or has to act contrary to them in order to be truly faithful. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a similar situation to uh, Paul, Jem's father, where they both have prescribed roles and they are committed to acting them out, but they don't feel like they're... Uh, properly cast in those roles,
1: Mm -hmm. I guess. Even though the casting itself of the movie on a meta level is is perfect for that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the case, too, for Jem, who is trying to live into this role that she thinks that she needs to have. And then when that role changes, when Owen takes an interest in her, she feels as though she has to live into the role that's been prescribed Mm -hmm. for her by him as well. And when everything comes crashing down, it's very clear that she does not understand why, because she has done everything in accordance with what this youth pastor has told her is right and good and true. And that's kind of a heartbreaking portrait of the fallout of abuse, not just in the, um, I don't know, the the cartoonish way that that could have been portrayed, but in the very real Emotional fallout and stakes behind such abuse as well.
0: Yeah, she's she's invested in the relationship. It's not just a, again. It's not a simple, uh, you know, monster and victim situation. It's she not
1: perfunctory. Had, yeah,
0: right. She she has invested herself emotionally and spiritually in this relationship. So when it is revealed for when when she is sort of has that moment of realization for of what it actually is, mm-hmm. that is crushing, and it's not crushing. Because it's horrifying to her. It's crushing because she genuinely had invested so much of herself in what was essentially smoke and mirrors. And mm-hmm. that is that is deeply sad. And it's, it's very touching at the same time. Yeah there there's a lot we could uh, keep talking about with this movie. Obviously, we both really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I was really impressed by this film. Listeners, if you've had a chance to catch up with this film, like we mentioned last week, it is available to rent on demand uh, on Amazon Prime and elsewhere. So, it's obviously available for you to watch it at home if you didn't have a chance to catch it in the theater. So if you've watched it in either of those formats, let us know your thoughts. You can hit us up on Letterboxd. We're at cbelievepod over there. Or you can shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're going to go to an orphanage in the early 1900s for our Watchlist segment in just a second with our review of Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Stick around. listeners, we're going to take a quick break here and just uh, walk you through some of the changes that are happening over in Seeing and Believing land. So, as we've mentioned the last couple of episodes, sadly, we are drawing the curtain on Seeing and Believing, the podcast, but that doesn't mean that Seeing and Believing The entity, I guess, (laughs) the (laughs) collaboration, whatever you want to call this that Sarah and I have got going on here. We are
1: entity sounds ominous. Uh, So I'm here for it, honestly. I
0: mean, we we just, you know, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning just came out. We Uh, can't call it the entity, we can't call ourselves the entity. (laughs) That seems like just tempting fate. Whatever it is, Seeing and Believing is going on, and that form that it's going to take in its next stage of life is a substack. So, Mm -hmm. Sarah, you and I, we're starting up a a substack where we're going to be offering our thoughts on film and television in written form rather than in audio form. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to that. If you go to seeingandbelieving.substack.com, you can actually subscribe to us and get signed up. The newsletter is actually going to go active in late September, so it'll be a little while before you start getting those emails, but you can sign up for it now. We've got a landing page all set for you, a welcome message, and we really hope that some of you who have listened to our voices will enjoy reading our words just as much. Um, So yeah, head on over to Substack and and check us out over there. That address again is seeingandbelieving.substack.com.
1: So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not yet seen, and we watch it, and then we talk about it. So this week, Kevin, you picked Guillermo del Toro's 2001 movie, The Devil's Backbone. During the Spanish Civil War, a boy named Carlos is taken to a remote orphanage run by the Rojos, the Republican loyalists fighting against Francisco Franco. The orphanage is haunted by the possibility of war, made concrete in the form of an unexploded bomb that's been embedded in the courtyard. But Carlos also finds that the orphanage may be haunted by a much more literal ghost, a specter that the other orphans refer to as uno que suspira, the one who sighs. So... Kevin, this movie, I feel like, has a lot of the hallmarks of a Guillermo del Toro film. There's that gothic atmosphere, a lot of practical in-camera special effects, a haunting story from the point of view of an innocent, and an eye also, however tangentially, towards the church's role within all of this, which... Those last two things feel like the connective tissue, I think, between this and the Starling Girl, at least on some level. Um, So I am curious to know if there are any other connections that you were thinking of. But I also want to know what about Guillermo del Toro's whole thing you like specifically Mm. in this movie.
0: Yeah. So on my drive over to our recording studio, I was actually kind of just thinking about you know, one of my dream interviews would be Guillermo del Toro. I would mm. just, I would love to, if not interview him, at least just hang out with him. He just seems like a really great guy to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to interview him in any case. And I was just kind of thinking about, you know, what sort of questions would I ask? And as I was sort of noodling on that, um, one of the things that occurred to me is that, you know, so many of his films have very... You know, brutal violence you mm-hmm. think about you know the wine bottle scene in pan's labyrinth or um you know some of the uh the uh, a very intense beating scene that happens in nightmare alley or mm-hmm. some of the images in the devil's backbone as well um but the overriding impression that i take away from his films that have those brutal scenes of violence is that they're quite beautiful that mm-hmm. they that they love the world. And um, mm. even if the worlds in these films are dark, there's something worth loving and saving in them. Mm. And I would love to talk to him about that, about whether you know he finds that during the course of making a film like this, finds that beauty, or whether he goes into a project kind of already seeing that and wants to communicate it to the audience. That'd be fascinating to hear him talk about that. But I think that's why I like his films so much, why they appeal so much to me and why I keep coming back to them is I really like a film that is prepared to exact a full long look at the absolute worst Hmm. uh, that the world has to offer, whether it's spiritual evil or just plain old human evil. um, And yet is able to find the... um, the goodness in humans and the goodness in creation to counterbalance that and make it not a wallow in that brutality. Um, So that's what I really like about Guillermo del Toro's movies. I think his best films always succeed in drawing that out, that reaction out of me Hmm. with the devil's backbone. um, Specifically, You know, I I picked it to pair with The Starling Girl, mostly because both films, there are uh, young people who find themselves on the wrong end of a domineering adult, Mm. (laughs) um, to to put it in the most general terms. And uh, watching it this time, I was just... It's not a particularly scary film to me. I didn't find there are some suspense sequences that I think are, you know, effectively constructed. I don't find them all that scary. I think mostly because this film feels kind of like a fable, uh, like a childhood fable. Um, and I think a lot of that is just in the strength of the images that Del Toro finds in this. That unexploded bomb in the courtyard of this orphanage is mm-hmm. just such a potent. Uh, image that carries a lot of meanings within it. Um, the, uh, the headmistress who has a false leg, um, who kind of struggles with the, uh, the appetites that she does have and the desires that she wants to have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the villain of the film, who's a former orphan himself. Like it all feels very, almost, not fairy tale like because it's it's not fairy tale like in the same way that Pan's Labyrinth is, but it does feel as if it's freighted with a sensibility that is accessible to a child, even though <laughs> children should not be watching this movie. Yeah. Um, and no, I I just find that extremely provocative to encounter in a film, and um, in a weird in its own strange way uh, enchanting. So that's that's my my thoughts. I'm, I'm curious to know what your reaction was to to this film and maybe where del Toro fits in your own uh, estimation. Yeah,
1: um, enchanting is a really good word for it. I think enchanting can sometimes be used just to refer to something that's a little bit light and airy. And I think at its best, something that's enchanting is mesmerizing and has the capability of sometimes being scary as well. And so for me, that that really works for... Guillermo del Toro's whole deal. I think I'm a touch cooler on him than you are, but I also suspect I've seen fewer of his films. So he's growing in my estimation, I think. I actually liked this more than Pan's Labyrinth. Oh.
0: Okay. Specifically
1: because I think Pan's Labyrinth is that, has that fairy tale quality. And I did like Pan's Labyrinth very much, but the ghost story angle on a somewhat similar tale, I think was something that grabbed me a little bit more. Maybe because it is a little bit more overt horror and it's a slightly smaller story and it doesn't feel as enamored with the idea of storytelling in general hmm. the same way that pan's labyrinth does i think I, I didn't get distracted by some of the meta elements in the same way that i did around pan's labyrinth this is not to completely knock pan's labyrinth i do still think it's a very good movie but i think i liked this one a little bit more because of its simplicity and because it was working in a slightly different jo- genre and a slightly different register i really liked this movie a lot um and I, th- I think you're right in terms of Guillermo del Toro as being kind of, he feels like a very humanist filmmaker to me, specifically in the um, people can be inherently good or at the very least deserving of grace sort of way, um, even and especially because he's willing to go there in terms of the violence and the horror of living and existing in a broken world. Um, I get a lot of that from movies like Crimson Peak, which I enjoyed but didn't Mm -hmm. love. And I get a lot of that from Pinocchio, which just came out last year, which I also didn't love as much as I would have liked to. Um, And also to a lesser extent from Nightmare Alley. I feel like that movie is probably his bleakest, at least of all of the ones that I've seen. Mm -hmm. That's a rough watch. And it's a good watch. And it's a worthwhile one. Um, But here I think with the Devil's Backbone, you kind of get all of those elements wrapped up in a way that does feel cleanly balanced without trying to sum up everything perfectly neatly. And I think that's pretty remarkable, especially given that the movie begins and ends with almost the exact same voiceover. Like it's It's intentionally balanced in terms of where the characters start and where the characters end. And I think it's getting at this idea of the cycle of violence is going to perpetuate itself until somebody is going to be able to break free of it. And I don't know that del Toro has an answer for breaking free from that violence, but he is very clearly enamored of dealing with stories from the perspective of an innocent child and trying to preserve that innocence, even in the face of darkness and danger, and recognizing that they're still going to have to deal with the horrors that are in the world and yet he doesn't want that light to be fully snuffed out either it 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 feels like a very grace-filled way to approach a story like this i think
0: yeah um i you know uh as you were talking i I was i was thinking a little bit about stephen king's it Hmm. which uh not the movie just the 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 book i haven't actually watched uh the, you know, the recent adaptations. I saw the first one, didn't really bother with the second one. That seems like that might have been a good choice. <laughs> but um, the book is very focused on kind of being a sort of a definitive statement on horror and childhood. Mm. And I think it's intermittently successful at that. I think The Devil's Backbone is much more successful at kind of, uniting those two sensibilities, the, the sensibility of, you know, giving us a, um, a spooky ghost story and also kind of being about, uh, the way a child sees the world and also kind of just, uh, a child's place in the world. Mm. Um, the fact that the, the scary ghost in this film is, uh, is a child. Uh, himself and not in a kind of a, a creepy child sort of way that's sort mm-hmm. of a, a horror cliche but in a way where he I, I think part of the reason why I don't find this film all that scary is because the, the ghost is he is just a a boy mm-hmm. um, and he's as the opening and closing voiceover says he's sort of trapped in amber he's trapped in time something was done to him he lost his life and now he's just stuck and um, and uh, I there, there's something so poignant about that and also poignant in the way the other child characters in this film sort of see the world and try to interact with it. Um, it it's just it's very touching to me. There's a scene where one of the older boys at the at the orphanage um, who starts off the film kind of as a stereotypical bully mm-hmm. and then as the film goes on, you kind of come to understand him a little bit better. Um, He has a crush on a young woman who's helping at the, at the orphanage and he gives her a uh, like a foil ring that probably used to be wrapped around a cigar or something, you know, just something he found some junk Mm -hmm. and he gives it to her sort of as a gift. And he sort of says, you know, it's not real gold, but you know, he's, he's doing it because he likes her and he just, he can't tell her obviously for lots of reasons, but it's a very sweet moment from him and the way that she reacts to, to it um, you know, accepting it and being very sweet in return to him um, being gentle with his feelings, I think is just a wonderful little grace note that, you know, isn't anywhere in a book like it. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I appreciate about Del Toro is he does have kind of that, I don't know if humanist is the right word because crucifixes show up an awful lot in his movies yes. and as do uh, religious figures, uh, religious authority figures who have to be, uh, you know, struck down in some way. Like, there, there's too much religion in, in his films for me to say he's fully humanist. Um, there's something going on there. But he is a, a person who is very compassionate and loving of humans. Mm-hmm. And you see it in, in scenes like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the crucifixes, because I think my favorite line from this movie is um, from a group of boys who are physically lifting and carrying around a crucifix to be cleaned. And one of them just kind of comments offhand, for a dead guy, he's awfully heavy. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact kind of innocent remark that I think a child would absolutely make. And it's also, I think, very true of Guillermo del Toro's sensibility towards religion and towards spiritual authorities and figures. And you're right, I think he is wrestling with something there. I don't fully know that he knows the answer, but I like that he's willing to go Mm -hmm. there anyway. And I like that he's willing to go there in those smaller grace notes as well. So that moment between Jaime the orphan who gives Conchita the paper ring is such a sweet moment. And... She knows it for what it is. And then when she's asked about it by somebody else almost immediately afterwards, she's smiling, but she says, oh, it's a child's thing. It's child's stuff. But it's a statement that comes out of, I think, affection for this kid without it being anything more than that. She knows that this kid has a crush on her. She's going to let him down easy because that's not remotely anything that she's interested in. And it's just a very sweet gesture. And I I really appreciated that grace note in there, too.
0: Yeah, I... I appreciate you say that you're not entirely sure what you know what Del Toro is going for with all these you know uh, religious things that recur in his films, uh, and that maybe he doesn't even know. And I I think that's why I I like him as a filmmaker is I get the sense that he does he's not a very he's not a studied filmmaker. He's not like a Kubrick who you know just you know kind of is obsessively detail oriented, or or you know like a David Fincher who just you know, has a very disciplined uh, uh, way of going about filmmaking and storytelling, um, which isn't to say he's undisciplined. It's more just I think he's got certain things that he likes to see in movies, and they show up over and over and over again. You've, you know, you of course have you know crucifixes, religious authority figures. There are also often um, gentle elderly men in mm. his films that often meet with bad ends i mean you hmm. think of chronos the shape of water uh um uh pan's labyrinth has one like there there are all these like kind of almost courtly older gentlemen in his films that kind of are just you 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 love them so much or like i, I watch one of these films and you watch them and you just you you want to give them a hug and often things don't end well for them. They're—it's almost like they're—they're they're part of this courtly tradition that has no place in kind of a brutal modern world. Mm-hmm. And again, do I know like what "quote unquote" they mean uh, in in the films? Like, what do they represent? I don't know that that's the point. I just think it's interesting that they show up again and again in Del Toro's films. They f- fill similar roles in his films, and. It's just nice to see them there. And I, I like the fact that we kind of get del Toro working that mode so much where he just he puts things on screen that he finds interesting or compelling or frightening um, or all of the above mm-hmm. and uh, kind of trusts his audience to be compelled in similar ways and speaking personally I definitely am. Yeah. I
1: I get the sense that he's not a controlling filmmaker which might be why he's so good with getting good child performances. Mm-hmm. Um Pacific Rim has a pretty solid child performance in it in the middle of a very wild movie. Um and there's a lot of really good child performances in this movie too. So I I don't know. I don't know what it is about how he's able to do that but each of these children also feel pretty fully realized and they're they're doing what they need to do in order to be able to tell the story, but they don't feel as though they are trying too hard or acting. And I don't know what the set necessarily was like, but I like that he is a filmmaker who is able to bring out that kind of performance in a kid. And also who is able to bring out a performance in a child in a situation that if it weren't in a story would be genuinely terrifying. I also don't find this movie necessarily all that scary. I find it more sad than anything else, but mm-hmm. there is some very striking imagery and specifically with um, this ghost that's haunting the orphanage. The first time we see him, I think it's almost meant to be sort of a jump scare, at least the, the reveal of this child's face almost being broken. Like it's um like it's pottery. And there's something dark leaking out of it which we later find out is is essentially the specter's blood that sounds big and scary but i think the more that the image is repeated the more that the tragedy behind its circumstances i think is made more clear and instead of being more scary or even losing its potency every time we see this child um i also just want to give him a hug because mm-hmm. there's nothing much else that you can do for a figure in this specific plight. I'm going to steal an idea from a friend of mine who says that she likes the idea of hauntings specifically because there is an angle of justice to it. And I think there is a very strong angle of justice that has to do with these ghosts. So the idea is that um, if you're still stuck on earth after you've died, there's unfinished business, which means that there is justice that needs to be done. And I think that's the case for the ghosts that we come across in this movie specifically. And they're the only ones who can see it through to the end because they're the only ones who have that full picture of what is going to happen, who is responsible, who is at fault. And ultimately, they're the ones who are able to bring that justice. So we we get that with um, our child ghost. And then we also get that with the other ghost who appears a little bit later in the film, kind of in a surprising Moment, And it's not a moment of vengeance. It's a moment of setting the other children in the orphanage free. And I find that to be a a very like justice oriented action where he's he's only doing what he's capable of doing this ghost is, but what he is capable of doing is what he was doing in life when he was alive as well, which was trying to give these kids a better life. And if it's just down to unlocking a door then he's going to do that too. I, I don't know. I just, I really like that idea.
0: I, I like that, that take as well. It's not one that I've, I've encountered before. So props to your friends. <laughs> yes. um, I, yeah. So there's a very telling um, shot that Del Toro gives us kind of in the first big suspense sequence of the film. So our protagonist, Carlos, it's the middle of the night. He's, he's been woken up by the, by the ghost um, and the the water jugs in the children's bedroom have all been knocked over. So he is sent to another part of the building to refill the water jug. Um, and of course, uh, that is the the building where uh, that contains the basement, which is sort of the epicenter of the haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, the the our, our young boy protagonist, here's the, uh hears the voice of the ghost and he's lured down into the basement. It's a spooky basement, and he's scared. And of course, like you know how this sort of suspense sequence is supposed to go. But then, rather than it being the camera being tied entirely to Carlos's perspective, where we're kind of looking at shadows and, and getting jump scares, Del Toro gives us a reverse shot, and we see the ghost hiding behind a pillar with Carlos in the background Mm. and the, the way that the ghost is comporting himself is it's not like trying to be scary. It's not trying, it's not lying in wait to ambush Carlos. It's almost like the ghost is hiding from the living. Mm. And that's a shot that a, another filmmaker who's just interested in making a spooky movie about ghosts wouldn't have put in this. That's a shot that's put in because del Toro cares about the little boy who has become a ghost or who has had ghostness thrust upon him. Hmm. Um, And that's something, it's entirely in the cinematic language. And I think that's what sets Del Toro apart from just sort of uh, a hack who likes to make spooky movies or a master who just likes to really make the best sort of scary horror film he can. Mm -hmm. del toro cares about something cares about other things in addition to those things i guess i'd say
1: yeah yeah i don't know i really i like del toro's aesthetic um i think that's been the thing that has resonated with me the most is that dedication towards showing those characters in their setting and kind of finding enchanting ways to bring out the mood and the feel of like whatever gothic story it is that he's exploring And that purposefulness that he uses in order to pull out something surprising out of something that otherwise probably could have been told in a story in five lines or less, like it could be a fairy tale, it could be a horror story. All you really need to know is that there's a ghost, but that's not all that you need to know in order to get the Guillermo del Toro story specifically, because he's going to give you something surprising from the perspective of the specter as well. I like that quite a lot.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad that you liked uh, The Devil's Backbone. I'm very pleased. Yes. <laughs> as as the podcast's uh, resident Del Toro fanboy. <laughs> yes.
1: Definitely glad I watched this one.
0: Well, uh, listeners, if you had a chance to watch along with us, uh, if you are a Del Toro fanboy or a Del Toro skeptic, either way, we're interested to hear from you. You can hit us up on Letterboxd or by email, as we already described. Uh, very hungry to... Find find my other Del Toro peeps out there wherever you might be. Uh, next week, we are going to be going to, for some lighter fare, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'd say, we're going to be talking about for our new release, the uh, sex comedy Bottoms, mm-hmm. uh, which is currently out, but uh, we're going to cover it next week for sure. And Sarah, you have elected to pair that with a Howard Hawks movie from 1953 that- our listeners have probably at least have heard of.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. We're going to be covering gentlemen prefer blondes, um, which also has to do with kind of a, it's got a sex comedy angle. It's got a battle of the sexes sort of angle. It's also very funny. It's anchored in some really good comedic performances and interplay between Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe as well. So I'm really excited to talk about gentlemen prefer blondes with you.
0: I'm looking forward to to that too. I I mean, Of course, I've seen Monroe in Some Like It Hot, Mm -hmm. Uh, I also caught her in How to Marry a Millionaire, uh, which is not a very good movie, in my opinion, but she's very good in it. Yes. And so I'm looking forward to I I think she's a very talented comedic actress. I'm looking forward to digging deeper into uh, into more comedies with her in them.
1: It should be a fun time.
0: Well, listeners, uh, if you want to watch along with us, "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is available to rent on demand from the usual collection of streaming services. So watch along if you like. Uh, we're looking forward to having that discussion next week. But that'll do it for this week. Seeing and Believing is, of course, brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week for almost 400 episodes and counting has helped us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClendon. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.